0: Hello, Hello. and welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we take deep, irreverent dives into lesser-known stories about the early presidents. I'm Howard. I'm Jess. And let's just get right into it. I'm going to start and finish today with a story about Madison. Okay. Washington. Wait, what? This is not a president. This is a man named Madison Washington. Okay. Okay. He was born into slavery in Virginia or West Virginia, and in 1841, Madison Washington led the most successful slave revolt in American history. Oh, wow. And it's said that he was inspired by a painting. Oh
1: my goodness. I, I'm like, how have I not heard of this person?
0: Um, the painting, if you take a look at your phone.
1: Oh, you planted things on my phone? I did. Oh, wow. Wow. That's beautiful.
0: That is, uh, Sengbi Pai or Mm -hmm. Joseph Cinque in the United States, often called Cinque, the -hmm. leader of a group of enslaved Africans who mutinied against their captors aboard a schooner called La Amistad.
1: Oh yes.
0: I know this isn't exactly a lesser known story since there was, you know, a Steven Spielberg movie about it, (laughs) right? but I haven't seen that movie in 24 years. Same. I should watch it again. Um, (laughs) When I read about it recently, there were so many incredible parts of the story that I knew that I wanted to share them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And most of those details come from the book, The Amistad Rebellion by Marcus Rediker. Uh, It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it if you want to dig into the Amistad and the people aboard it. Mm -hmm. This is a story in four acts. Act one, the rebellion. Our story starts in a place like, uh, look at the next picture on your phone.
1: There's more pictures on my phone. Just one more picture. It's a little disturbing that you can just access my phone so easily. You know. I think we've been here. Have we been there?
0: Do you recognize that picture?
1: We've been there, right?
0: We have not been there. You took it in 2011 in Ghana.
1: I took this picture? Yes. I've been there.
0: Yes, this is. I knew
1: I had been there at least. Yeah,
0: this is Elmina Castle. A slave castle built by the Portuguese in 1482.
1: I remember this place.
0: It's the oldest European building south of the Sahara. 30,000 enslaved Africans went through Elmina Castle each year.
1: Mm. It's like, I think I knew that then. I mean, obviously, I was in grad school when I went and I I knew that. But I don't know why it's hitting me differently now. I mean, I, I was in awe of it then thinking how many people were yeah. carted through there. And the imprisonment areas, like the cells are so small. Mm. And they had hundreds of people packed in. Yeah, I just, it's very, very depressing.
0: Yeah. Our story begins about a thousand miles down the African coast, not in Ghana, but in present day Sierra Leone, at a slave factory called Lomboko, a similar place to the slave castle, except... In Lomboko, uh, the enslaved were not held in a castle. They were held in outdoor uh, barracoons, which were basically hut like cages.
1: This is not going to be like an upper of a story. I have, I have a, a sneaking suspicion. There's a. That there's, this is going to be a walt There's
0: some upper moments. Okay.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: Lomboco was the private kingdom of a powerful Spanish slave trader named Pedro Blanco, a nice symbolic name. Right. Thousands of slaves were moved through here. Men, women, children from all over West Africa were taken to Lomboko.
1: I just can't... Can you imagine trying to explain to your child what's happening?
0: No. If you were even with your child.
1: Well, correct. But say you were with a child or yeah. your child. Can you imagine trying to explain to a child what's happening?
0: No. And often they didn't know. Right. It's important to note that at this point, this is 1839... The Atlantic slave trade was illegal. Britain banned it in 1807. The U.S. followed suit in 1808. But you could keep owning slaves and breeding them and buying and selling them within the U.S., but you couldn't bring any more in from Africa.
1: Hmm. Seems like there's a hint of morality building there that never quite took.
0: Well, I mean, it's a slow process.
1: Yeah, still.
0: Britain went even further in 1833 they declared that slavery itself was now outlawed everywhere under British control. We didn't do that until
1: 1865.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So at this time, British anti-slavery patrols were actively stopping ships to inspect them to see if they were slave ships, but not American ships because the United States said, no, you can't search our ships. We're not consenting to that. (sighs) That's one of the reasons that so many slave ships, some from Spain and Portugal, they put up American flags on their mast so the British wouldn't bother them.
1: Oh my gosh. Like slave ships hiding behind the U.S. flag.
0: Yeah, not Old Glory's finest hour. No. Most of the captives who would eventually be on the Amistad originated uh, in Limboko, and some of them met here, including the leaders Cinque and Grabo. Cinque was a rice farmer. Uh, he was taken while well, he was traveling on a road. Grabo was taken the same way.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Grabo was covered in tattoos that showed his status as a warrior. They were oh. like military medals that he couldn't take off.
1: Wow. That is badass.
0: Yeah, they, they were. Both Cinque and Grabo, they had military experience fighting for different kings in different wars. Nice. They'd been trained. They
1: kidnapped the wrong people.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's that's where this is headed. That's really, Um, I'm excited. These men had been trained. They were probably even trained to use muskets, Mm. which you don't imagine at this time in Africa, or at least I don't. Right. And most of the men, even though they were from different areas of West Africa, they shared this sort of brotherhood, a secret society called the Poro that came with its own codes of behavior, governing war councils and decision-making and justice. Hmm. Cinque, Grabo, and about 500 others were crammed onto a ship called the Tecora. The conditions aboard the Tecora were, like a lot of transatlantic slave voyages, cramped and confined. They had to crouch because there wasn't room to stand up. Mm. Putrid, deadly, not enough water or food. Some people chose to jump into the ocean if they could, preferring death. Oh, God. They were en route to Havana, Cuba. Mm Mm-hmm. Slavery was legal in Cuba, but the slave trade was not, because Spain had signed this treaty with Britain agreeing to that, and Britain paid Spain a whole lot of money to agree to it. But just because it was illegal doesn't mean it wasn't thriving. Um, Just like some prisons have reputations for being way worse than others, Mm -hmm. the Caribbean was known to be the worst of the worst. It was the place that American slave owners, including George Washington, threatened to send their slaves if they misbehaved.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: And for good reason. Harvesting sugarcane to meet the worldwide demands, it was grueling. Slavers worked men to death and just replaced them with more. So bleak. <laughs> it is. The, this part is a little bleak. It's very dark. Yeah. The Africans who survived the passage on the Takora were taken from the ship and stuffed into barracoons in Havana. While in Havana, they very likely saw the executions of some other enslaved people who attempted escapes. Mm. So it was made clear to them that their fate was probably going to be death or worse. And they formed bonds in the Barracoons in Lomboco and on the Takora. When they were separated to be sold off to different buyers in Havana, it was gut-wrenching after what they'd been through together. Mm. Even Cinque cried. Grabo noted that he did not cry because he is a man. Oh. Yeah. All right. A Spaniard named José Ruiz selected 49 of them in Havana and purchased them. Another Spaniard, Pedro Montez, purchased four children. Mm. Together, they brought them all onto a schooner called La Amistad, which Mm. means friendship.
1: That's Screwed up.
0: It was painted black to help avoid British anti-slavery patrols, and it had tight quarters for the enslaved people. Some of them were kept on deck and some below deck. Mm. The men would be heavily chained at night, less so during the day, and only the little girls were really allowed to roam free. Mm. Conditions on the Amistad, if you can believe, were also terrible. What? Yeah. They were. Shocking. Yeah. They were treated like animals by the crew, but it was the cook on the ship, an African man named Celestino, who really pushed the captives too far. He didn't speak the same language as the captives, and he worked for the captain. He treated Cinque and the others horribly, beating them, taking long gulps of water in front of them Mm. while depriving them. They got a total of one teacup of water per day. What? Well, they got to watch the crew wash their clothes with fresh water.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: And when they did find some water below deck and drank it, they were whipped. One of them was whipped bloody and tortured with a mixture of salt, rum, and gunpowder poured into his wounds. Oh,
1: god, that's awful.
0: I know. I'm. The, I, I, yes. <laughs> All right, we're we're getting to the bad, so we can crawl out of it. Okay. Okay.
1: All right, we're gonna crawl out of it soon. Pretty, Pretty soon. soonish. Yes. Okay. But this is important. It's important to know. Yeah. I knew it already, though. That's the thing. Now we're re- revisiting this terrible thing. Yes. Yes, let's do it. Yes. It's important to revisit. Yeah.
0: Uh, we should watch Amistad every month. Just <laughs> to remember.
1: Yeah, this shouldn't be swept under the rug, for sure. So bring it on.
0: So that kind of thing was par for the course on these ships. But if that was the extent of the abuse, we might never have heard of the Amistad. But Celestino, the cook, he motioned with his knife that they were going to be killed, cut into pieces, and eaten by the white men. Jesus. That was the worst thing he could have said. It was a common, long-held belief by many Africans that white men on ships were cannibals. And this was reinforced by West African slaveholders who said, behave or I'll sell you to the white men and they'll take you out to sea and eat you.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: That night, below deck, the captives decided they weren't going to be killed or eaten. They had a meeting mm-hmm. and they voted for war. Mm. They broke off their chains.
1: How did they do that?
0: Maybe by picking locks. It's possible that one of them had found a nail or something metal that allowed them to do that. Two of the captives were blacksmiths back home. So they knew the properties of iron.
1: Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's lucky.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of things that went into this.
1: Right. I feel like breaking out of the chains would be be difficult for me.
0: For anyone. Yeah. About four o'clock in the morning in total darkness... Cinque and three others came for Celestino first. They quickly beat him to death in his bed. Mm. The little girls on the ship, who were considered harmless and they weren't chained, Mm -hmm. they found some machetes and brought them to the other captives.
1: Oh, fantastic.
0: Yeah. The battle for the ship broke out on deck with the rebels armed with machetes and knives. The crew grabbed knives and oars, whatever they could get their hands on. Everything happened too suddenly for them to get their guns. Which might have changed the whole outcome. Right. Two crew members bailed in a canoe. They were gone. (laughs) Um, The captain, Captain Farrer, he put up a fight and he killed one of the rebels. Uh. But thanks to those little girls finding those machetes, the captain was surrounded and killed. Yes. And the warriors, as part of their victorious war custom, beheaded him. Okay. Yeah. So Cinque and the rebels, they left the slave owners, Ruiz and Montez alive mm-hmm. so that they could steer the ship. Mm. And they ordered them to take them home to Africa mm. to follow the rising sun, to go east. Mm-hmm. Now that was way too far away for them to ever make that voyage, especially with the supplies they had. Oh. But Ruiz and Montez said, okay, fine, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll do that. So during the day, They would sail east, Mm -hmm. but they kept the sails loose so that they were not going very far. At night, Uh, they would steer the ship north and west so that they could hopefully get back. they were tricking them. They were tricking them, yeah. At this point, they were hoping that a British anti-slavery patrol ship would intercept them Mm -hmm. uh, to save their lives.
1: Wow. Dangerous times. Scary.
0: Yeah. They also let one other crew member live, an African boy, Antonio. Uh, He was the dead captain's cabin boy. Mm. And he was valuable because he could actually translate Mm -hmm. so they could, you know, speak to each other.
1: Right. And it sounds like he was enslaved
0: as well. He was. Yeah. Yeah. So the steering the other way plan, it it wasn't working out because they weren't getting anywhere. Mm. Eventually, Ruiz and Montez basically said, hey, Africa is way too far away. We're never going to make it. Do you want to go to America? There's no slavery there. And the Africans agreed.
1: I thought there was slavery there.
0: There was slavery there, yes. Okay. The Africans didn't know it, though. Oh. So they sailed north. They made it all the way up to Long Island, New York, Hmm. where they were intercepted by the United States Navy. Mm Mm-hmm. And that brings us to Act Two: the sensation and the assimilation. When Navy officers boarded the Amistad, they found Ruiz and Montez tied up, and they immediately freed them, and took their side, turning the tables on the Africans and arresting them. So they were held on the boat and essentially re-enslaved by the United States.
1: Ugh, after all that, I mean, the hopelessness.
0: Yeah. The story of the Amistad became a sensation almost immediately, and Sinke was at the center of it. Mm-hmm. When the Navy boarded the ship, he tried to escape into the ocean, but he was eventually brought back, and he gave a speech to his fellow Africans on deck, translated by Antonio to a reporter. And in that speech, he made it clear that he would rather die than be a slave. Mm -hmm. It had echoes of Patrick Henry's give me liberty or give me death. And it helped cement Cinque as a noble freedom fighter. A judge was brought in to try them for mutiny. Now, I said the Atlantic slave trade was illegal, Mm -hmm. but slavery itself was still legal in lots of places, including a lot of states in the U.S. and Cuba. So Ruiz, he had these forged documents Stating that these slaves were born in Cuba, oh, oh, no. which would mean they were his legal property. Oh. Never mind that they didn't speak Spanish or that Antonio, who could translate, knew they weren't from Cuba. Um, the Spanish slave owner was white, and his word carried the day. So screwed up.
1: I can I can imagine the hopelessness. I'm feeling hopeless just listening to this. Yeah. I want like, to jump into the sea.
0: Like, yeah. The judge decided they'd be brought to a jail in New Haven, Connecticut, and they would await trial there. So a group of abolitionists, they immediately took up the Africans' cause uh, because they believed in their rights and mm-hmm. because they saw this as a great opportunity to promote their cause. Mm-hmm. They were led by a man named Lewis Tappan, and they formed the Amistad Committee for the purpose of defending these captives mm-hmm. and returning them home. Wow. Even though the Africans there were from something like nine different distinct areas, at this point, they started to consider themselves collectively as the Mendi people, based on their broad general region and languages. Mm-hmm. The abolitionists, part of their cause involved assimilating them into American culture, okay. uh, the, the English language, their Christian religion.
1: Alrighty.
0: So, not exactly respectful of their culture or beliefs. Exactly. But. The abolitionist motives were way better than the other side. And they were the only hope that Africans had to get home. Makes sense. The children, especially, they picked up English and reading and writing pretty well over time in jail, Mm. especially a boy named uh, Calais. So the U.S. Navy, they found the Amistad on August 26th. On September 2nd, the Bowery Theater of New York debuted a play all about the mutiny called The Long Low Black Schooner. Oh, wow. That's how fast they moved.
1: That's a fast production.
0: <laughs> right? People wanted to know more about the story. And they wanted to know uh, what these captives looked like. So drawings of the Africans, especially of Cinque, they illustrated the bloody revolt, and they showed the captives as individuals, as humans, in a way that made the story more real to many readers. One painting done of the rebellion was over 135 feet long.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: And it toured New England as... The Magnificent Painting of the Massacre on Board the Schooner Amistad. Oh. Yeah, it's lost now, unfortunately, but maybe somebody out there has a giant rolled-up canvas in their basement. Who knows?
1: <laughs> if you come across this, <laughs> please deliver it, Yeah, to... so if you're like,
0: what is going on, Grandpa? <laughs> um, Grandpa? <laughs> but these exhibits, they didn't stop with two-dimensional artwork. Another even more successful touring show had wax figures of the captives created by someone who spent time at the new haven jail meticulously noting their features and measurements
1: disturbing that's all i have to say
0: i mean they're going for realism it's it's,
1: yeah it's hard to tell is this like art or is it exploitation or i mean i'm just having mixed feelings it's all
0: of it and you it gets even more oh geez um
1: it's like it's like the next step is actually having one of them there behind bars, like a freak show or something, you know, like a circus freak show. Oh, here we go. Oh, really? Did yeah. I
0: guess it? So the touring shows, they were great for people who couldn't make it to see the real thing. New Haven took advantage of the public curiosity, and they let people visit to get a look at the Africans for 12 and a half cents a pop.
1: Oh my God.
0: Thousands of people were going through the jail each week. The abolitionists might have seen this as a good thing because it was publicizing their case. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, the Africans might not have minded. So in Poro culture, performing feats of athletic prowess was part of their initiation, part of being a warrior. In the prison yard, they would do impressive gymnastics moves, like double and triple flips, things that made American circus performers look like amateurs. Grebo could walk on his hands along the length of the prison yard people started paying them for these shows which made a lot of people feel weird like this is
1: I feel weird not
0: right but the prison allowed it since they were getting a cut
1: this <laughs> is so screwed up
0: it's, it's it's so screwed up it was a sensation it captivated people
1: and their captors are definitely profiting from it
0: yeah it's so disturbing definitely um i want to talk about the language barrier okay It was a huge problem between the abolitionists and the Africans, Mm -hmm. uh, especially since Antonio, that kid who could translate, he was returned to Cuba as the property of the dead captain's heirs.
1: Oh, great.
0: Yeah, he was re-enslaved. So now that they had no one to translate, the abolitionists, they knew that they had to find someone if they were going to get the truth out to help these Africans to Mm -hmm. be free and educated in the white Christian ways they needed someone who spoke their language Mm -hmm. and this is one of my favorite parts of the story okay um so the little girls margaret cagney and Mm teme um they were teaching visitors to count to 10 in mendy oh and an abolitionist professor named josiah gibbs he saw this and he hatched a plan he learned the mendy words for one through ten and he headed to the busy new york city docks where tons of people were coming and going from all over the world. And he walked up and down the docks, counting to 10 over and over again in Mendy as loud as he could. Okay. I love this. It's like a wild effort to see if someone might hear it and say Uh to themselves, why the hell is someone in America speaking this language I know that's spoken 6,000 miles away?
1: Right. So it was a stitch effort to find a translator.
0: Yeah. Uh, And after a while, a couple of sailors approached and said, we speak Mendy. Uh, Of course, Gibbs had no idea what they were saying, but luckily they also spoke English. Mm. One of these men was James Covey. He was 20 years old. He grew up in Mendy country, and he could speak several local languages. He was enslaved when he was 10 years old. Mm. He was sold to Pedro Blanco at one point, and he was shipped across the sea. His ship was on the way to Havana when a British ship overtook it and freed the slaves there. Wow. Then he joined the British Navy, and that's how he ended up in New York. His captain supported the abolitionist cause and said, yeah, go ahead, work with these folks, work with Lewis Tappan, help them.
1: It's amazing.
0: Yeah, so they'd found someone who not only knew the African's language and English, but also knew the horrors of Lomboko and the slave trade. Yeah. This opened up the floodgates for the full story and the details to come out on who these captives were and what happened aboard the Amistad.
1: It's amazing. Yeah. That, I mean, finding that translation is so key to even having this story. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Because that let them tell their story to reporters. Yeah. And compelling language and in the courtroom.
1: Yeah. So it's now documented.
0: Yeah. The president at the time was Martin Van Buren. Now, he was from New York. Um, I think his family had owned slaves at one point, but he wasn't like the Southern slave owner not like the presidents who came before him. Mm -hmm. His views on slavery evolved over time, but he was a shrewd politician and he knew that the Southern vote was vital if he wanted to get reelected to a second term. And of course, that's
1: the most important
0: thing. Of course.
1: You getting elected to second term. Yeah. Or at all. (laughs) Like, screw the thousands of lives that that sacrifices. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't fathom that level of selfishness.
0: Yeah, I mean, in his mind, he probably thought that he had plans for the nation as a whole that would do good things. And for whatever reason, the institution of slavery just didn't bother him enough but to try was to do saying, anything about it.
1: Everyone was saying that.
0: Yeah. So he's got pressure on two sides, from the South to not do something that implies that it's okay for black people to kill white people who enslave them, because uh, that sets a dangerous example. He's also getting pressure from the Spanish government, which he doesn't want to piss off. Spain is saying, these are Cuban-born slaves who murdered Spanish citizens. You need to send them back to Havana to face justice.
1: (laughs) It's like they wouldn't have been there the first place, though.
0: And they weren't Cuban-born.
1: Right.
0: Everyone knew that sending them back to Havana would be a death sentence. Right. Martin Van Buren chose death. Oh. He didn't let it go. He put the force of the executive power behind returning the Amistad captives to Spanish control. He ordered that they be returned. Wow. But there's a separation of powers. The executive branch doesn't get to decide things that are under the purview of the judiciary. Okay. So this had to go through the courts.
1: Okay. And the courts hopefully weren't having it.
0: First, the district court heard their case. And they made a compelling case. This is where they actually got to testify. This is where they had their words translated, and this is where they physically stooped down on the ground to show what it was like on the Middle Passage from Africa. Mm. The district court decided they were not the property of Spain or of the slave owners who claimed them. They were free. But Martin Van Buren wouldn't accept that, so the United States appealed. It went to the circuit court, which dragged this out and kept the Mendi people behind bars even longer. The circuit court eventually agreed with the lower court and the Africans were declared free again, but Martin Van Buren still won't accept this. He took it all the way to the top, which brings us to act three, the Supreme Court.
1: All right. Yeah, baby.
0: Now the law was clearly on our side, but suddenly you're dealing with nine justices, five of whom own slaves. So the abolitionists needed a better lawyer, Mm -hmm. someone with experience arguing in front of the Supreme Court. They needed someone who knew international law and treaties better than anyone else. They needed someone who was known as the acutest, the astutest enemy of Southern slavery in Congress. They needed, drumroll please, they needed John Quincy Adams. Oh, yes. So this is 12 years after John Quincy Adams was president. Just after he lost the presidency to Andrew Jackson in a landslide the people of Massachusetts sent him back to Washington as a member of the House of Representatives, where he could loudly oppose Andrew Jackson and later his successor, Martin Van Buren. Um, A couple episodes, uh, Lindsay Chervinsky, she talked about how uh, JQA was bulletproof and how he used that to speak out against slavery uh, without being dragged into duels. Mm -hmm. That status would help him here too. He would bring history and gravity to the court. So after Adams accepted the request to represent the Mendy people in the Supreme Court, the boy, Calais, wrote him a letter in English. It's a a powerful letter from a child. It's the closest way we have of hearing their story directly from them. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that long, so I'm going to read the whole thing. Okay. Dear friend, Mr. Adams.
1: Already, I'm so (laughs) moved.
0: I want to write a letter to you because you love Mendy people and you talk to the Grand Court. We want to tell you one thing, Jose Ruiz say we born in Havana, he tell lie, we stay in Havana 10 days and 10 nights, we stay no more, we all born in Mendi, we no understand the Spanish language, Mendi people been in America 17 moons, we talk America language a little, not very good, we write every day, we write plenty letters, we read most all time, we read all Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and plenty of little books. We love books very much. We want you to ask the court what we have done wrong.
1: This letter is breaking my heart. Know.
0: What for Americans keep us in prison? Some people say Mendy people crazy. Mendy people dolt because we no talk America language. America people no talk Mendy language. America people crazy dolts. They tell bad things about Mendy people and we no understand. Some men say Mendy people very happy because they laugh and have plenty to eat. Mr. Pendleton come, and Mendy people all look sorry because they think about Mendyland and friends we no see now. Uh-huh. Mr. Pendleton say we feel anger and white men afraid of us. Then we no look sorry again. That's why we laugh. But Mendy people feel bad. Oh, we can't tell how bad. Some people say Mendy people no have souls. Why we feel bad, we know have no souls. We want to be free very much. Oh my gosh. Dear friend, Mr. Adams, you have children. You have friends. That might be an overstatement. (laughs) You love them. You feel very sorry if Mendi people come and take all to Africa. Uh We feel bad for our friends and our friends all feel bad for us. Americans not take us in ship. We were on shore and Americans tell us slave ship catch us. They say, we make you free. If they make us free, they tell truth. If they not make us free, they tell lie. If America give us free, we glad. If they no give us free, we sorry. Mm-hmm. We sorry for Mendy people little. We sorry for America people great deal because God punished liars. Mm-hmm. We want you to tell court that Mendy people no want to go back to Havana. We no want to be killed. Dear friend, we want you to know how we feel. Mendy people think, think, think. Nobody know. Teacher, he know. We tell him some. Mendy people have souls. We think we know God punish us if we tell lie. We never tell lie. We speak the truth. What for Mendy people afraid? Because they have got souls. Cook say he kill. He eat Mendy people. We afraid. We kill cook. Then captain kill one man with knife and cut Mendy people plenty. We never kill Captain if he no-kill us. If court ask who bring Mendy people to America, we bring ourselves. Ceci hold the rudder. All we want is make us free, not send us to Havana. Send us home. Give us missionary. We tell Mendy people Americans spoke truth. We give them good tidings. We tell them there is one God. You must worship him. Make us free and we will bless you and all Mendy people will bless you. Dear friend Mr. Adams, your friend, Calais.
1: Oh, my goodness. I mean, there really are no words. I know this is a podcast and there should be lots of words, <laughs> but I'm kind of speechless at the moment. It's very heart-wrenching.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, he's saying we didn't do anything wrong. We didn't do anything you wouldn't do in our position. And we've done all you've asked. Help us.
1: Exactly. And just why are we even here?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean,
1: the fact of like, what what is your view of us? Yeah. We can't grasp it. Because it's doesn't make sense. Exactly. It's just heart-wrenching.
0: Yeah. With all that in mind, John Quincy Adams went to court. From Fort Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg. From the Emancipation
1: Proclamation to Appomattox Courthouse.
0: From the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Compromise of 1877. From Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman to Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, the Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of a podcast that takes a deep dive into that era when a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.
1: Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.
0: So I want to talk about Adams and the specific Supreme Court that he was facing for a minute here, because this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Five of the justices on that court had been nominated by Andrew Jackson. Oh, God. Five out of nine. <sighs> by the way, there used to only be seven Supreme Court justices. But while Jackson was president and his party controlled Congress, they increased the number to nine, which gave him two new seats to fill.
1: Mm-hmm. That's funny how you can just do that.
0: You can do that, apparently. Yeah, yeah,
1: Which, I mean...
0: I mean, I think there's 13 circuits now, and maybe, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> By the way, when John Quincy Adams had been president, he was able to fill one seat with a guy named Robert Trimble. He was 50 years old when he was seated on the Supreme Court, and he died two years later. Still during Adams' term...
1: What happened to him?
0: I don't know um (laughs) i don't know i don't know he just died um but he died more than six months before the end of adams's term so adams was still president so adams could replace him again exactly he nominated someone new for the role Mm -hmm. an anti-jacksonian guy but the senate voted to postpone the vote
1: of course they did
0: until adams was out of office
1: of course they did exactly it's just these are these seem to be old tricks you know we play today yeah
0: so then Jackson got to fill that seat with one of his own. Um, it's just, I mean, the one seat JQA gets to fill, the guy dies and he doesn't get a do-over. I know. It just, it's
1: just not, it's not fair. No. It's the farthest from fair.
0: Yeah. These are the odds that Adams is up against. He's standing there in front of five justices nominated by Jackson and the majority of court, uh, they were slave owners or they had been. Mm-hmm. Roger B. Taney, the chief justice, he'd freed his slaves before he was on the court but this guy's still a piece of work. He's fam- <laughs> you mean
1: a piece of shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. He's famous for the Dred Scott decision, which is one of the worst Supreme Court decisions ever. It determined that black people had no rights as citizens under the Constitution. Oh. Yeah. This wouldn't Lovely. happen for another 20 years. Okay. Taney wrote that they had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect, that they were inferior and unfit to associate with the white race. Okay. That's the chief justice of the Supreme Court court. that Adams is arguing in front of. Okay. One other guy I want to call out on the bench was Philip P. Barber. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He and Adams had some history. Barber had served in the House of Representatives with Adams, but uh, Barber was super Jacksonian, so Adams hated him. Before he was even nominated to the court, Adams wrote in his diary that he hoped Barber would never be nominated to the Supreme Court because he was a shallow-pated wildcat, fit for nothing but to tear the union to rags and tatters.
1: I'm just I, speechless.
0: Yeah. And now Adams is arguing in front of this wildcat.
1: I'm... How does this even... I know. I don't know. I know. Um, I mean, what makes him think that <laughs> this would go well for him? <laughs> and not only that,
0: but he's, he's arguing in front of a court that he could have been on. Right. He was nominated to the Supreme Court. Uh-huh. He was approved... Uh To be on the Supreme Court, but he turned it down because he was doing ambassador stuff over in Russia and Mm -hmm. just wasn't his thing and didn't pay as well, I think.
1: Okay, so he could have made an impact on this court.
0: He could have, um, but now he's arguing in front of a bunch of people nominated by the guy who defeated him.
1: Mm. It's
0: rough. But he's got a few things going for him. He's got the law for one. He's also got his status, his history, his eloquence. He was called old man eloquent around this time. Mm -hmm. He knew how to argue to move people, like his father. Wow. Except I would argue that um, John Quincy Adams's causes were even more noble than that of the American Revolution.
1: Wow, that's a whole other um, discussion, I
0: think. Maybe. So Adams, he's there. He ties his argument to the Declaration of Independence, to God, to morality, and to the specific treaties that the case hinged on. He argued that Spain and Martin Van Buren had no case because those treaties didn't apply here. And those treaties basically depended on considering these men to be property. Mm -hmm. And it was a question of, can humans be property? And were they ever legally enslaved? All those things.
1: Mm. Now, who played John Quincy in the movie? Anthony
0: Hopkins. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it all depends on a bunch of treaties. And it's funny because... One of those treaties, the Treaty of Ghent, was negotiated by John Quincy Adams. Mm-hmm. Another of the treaties, the Adams Onis Treaty, was named after him.
1: Oh, all right.
0: So he's like the perfect person to be there in a lot yeah. of ways, but it's also like. The like,
1: universe brought him there.
0: Yeah. Uh, I should note, he was not the only lawyer for the defense. A man named Roger Sherman Baldwin, he spoke first, and he made their case really effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, but Adams knew the law, and he knew religion, and he knew mm-hmm. classic literature, and he used all of them to make a compelling argument. You could say it killed. <laughs> Literally.
1: What do you mean?
0: After Adams's first day of arguing, he was only halfway done, the court broke. And that night, Justice Philip A. Barber died in his sleep
1: what that cannot be an
0: accident yeah i don't know who murdered him (laughs) (laughs) right it was a coronary thrombosis um which can also be
1: like smothering
0: (laughs) (laughs) i don't know so there was a brief delay while they dealt with that huh then the court resumed adams came back tied everything together stuck his landing (laughs) I haven't seen Amazon in a long time, like I said, but it was probably I, I a lot like that.
1: We should need to know?
0: rewatch it. We really should. Um, yeah. I think Anthony Hopkins, it, it's probably just like that.
1: I think I fell asleep in the theater. Wow. If, what, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, you need to cut that out, though. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what's good for you, you'll cut that out. We'll you don't want to wind up like Barber.
0: No. <laughs> so then they waited for the court's decision with the lives of the Mendy people hanging in the balance. There were eight judges left who managed to survive Adams' arguments. The verdict came back. (laughs) Eight judges (laughs) left
1: who managed to survive his arguments. I caught that. (laughs) That's good.
0: So the verdict came back. Seven to one. The captives were no longer captives. They were free. In the case of U.S. versus Cinque et al., Cinque won.
1: Oh my gosh, so... How did that happen with this court?
0: Um, It was a matter of international law. It's interesting because this was looked at completely differently from the subject of American slavery. Okay. This was not looked at as a referendum on slavery itself. Mm -hmm. This was looked at as being about the international slave trade. Okay. So judges who were just fine with American slavery could still separate this and, that's and an amazing
1: feat right there separating the two and and you know somehow finding this particular thing to be you know, different
0: well i think part of it was um a lot of folks they knew that the middle passage from africa was terrible mm-hmm. there was no doubt about the idea of, of enslaving people in africa and, and and shoving them onto these boats that was horrible but they thought that american slavery was this kinder, gentler thing that in no way compared.
1: Got it. So, so
0: they were okay with black people being inferior and uh-huh. deserving of, you know, being enslaved, but mm. treating them to this too degree. terribly was, was not okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: Interesting that there's a line.
0: It is interesting. To um cross. Yeah.
1: And, yeah.
0: So they were free, but... The Supreme Court also ruled that the United States was not responsible for taking them back to Africa. They had to earn that. Mm. So together with their Christian and abolitionist buddies, they did a tour uh, where they were basically a spectacle, but they finally raised enough money for all of them who wanted to go back to Africa to go. A mm-hmm. few of them did decide to stay.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah. It was a victory for human rights for sure, but it didn't really move the needle when it came to American slavery.
1: Because they, it was still so differentiated.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Oh, that's a shame. Because he he had to separate it to win the case.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. You, know? you couldn't argue that. But, yeah.
1: But then it's almost ignored.
0: Yeah, I mean the abolitionists who were behind the cause. I think they thought this is one we can win. Mm-hmm. This is this is more cut and dry, and this will show people the humanity of black people and hopefully mm-hmm. uh, cause some cracks in the armor of slavery. Mm-hmm. That was, that was the intention and that was the intention and the power of that portrait of Cinque that I showed you mm-hmm. where he's pictured in, in almost like a, a Roman or Christ-like pose.
1: Yeah, definitely. And he looks so ethereal and calm. I mean, he has a stern look on his face, but it's almost like a calm, stern look, Yeah, like almost untouchable. And, unwavering
0: yeah it was a a powerful portrait now let's return to madison washington act four the final act
1: the final act the creole okay
0: so the creole was a ship it was built specifically to ship slaves along the coastal passage Mm -hmm. that meant the american coast because in 1841 the domestic slave trade was still totally legal so, this ship was taking 139 enslaved people from Richmond, Virginia, to New Orleans. It was a voyage that usually took about a month. One of those enslaved people was Madison Washington. Truly reliable details about him mm-hmm. are hard to come by. Really? Because his story was romanticized and fictionalized pretty early on uh, in abolitionist newspapers, in a novella by Frederick Douglass. Interesting. Yeah, and in a couple short biographies after that.
1: So when you say romanticized, are you going to go into that? Oh,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to Dr. Stanley Harold of South Carolina State University, home of the Bulldogs. <laughs> he wrote a great article piecing together the fact and fiction about Madison Washington. hmm he really just um, spoke my language as far as diving into the history of how these things were uh, changed and exaggerated. That's
1: fantastic. Yeah. I feel like it sounds like with this particular subject that was greatly needed.
0: Definitely. Yes. Um, and I had to pay $14 to buy that <laughs> article off of JSTOR. Worth it.
1: <laughs> Definitely worth it. it. Good $15 were spent. 14. 14. <laughs> yeah.
0: 15. I don't know.
1: Uh, I- <laughs> <laughs> So it was the patron dollars that paid for it, really? Yes, really. Yes, thank you. that's pretty amazing. It is. They're going to start uprising and say, what are you spending our dollars on?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's JSTOR
1: articles.
0: (laughs) So we're pretty sure that before being transported aboard the Creole, Washington was enslaved in Virginia or West Virginia. Then he somehow escaped to Canada, where he was involved with some abolitionists. And then he made his way south to get his family back. So Madison Washington, he was also said to be very strong. One man who knew him said, his arms were as big as my legs. Jeez. Yeah.
1: That is romanticized
0: <laughs> No, that's, that's a real detail.
1: Oh. Think? Somebody,
0: a contemporary person actually said that. Oh, really? That's not from the fiction. Oh, the God. fiction makes him out to be like, um, you know, sexy bodice ripper, strong man, oh. awesome. Yeah. So on his way to rescue his family he stopped in Philadelphia and he met a rich black abolitionist named Richard Purvis. Mm-hmm. It was Purvis who commissioned that striking portrait of Cinque by the artist Nathaniel Jocelyn. Purvis hoped that when people saw this portrait in a gallery and they saw the humanity and the dignity and the strength of Cinque, that they would all leave the gallery as abolitionists.
1: It's mm, a nice
0: thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, Purvis said that the painting arrived at his home at the same time that Madison Washington was visiting him. And he told a reporter, 48 years after the events, so probably true. Um, he told a reporter, I showed Washington this painting, and he asked me who it represented. I told him the story of sinke and he became intensely interested. He said, Washington drank in every word and greatly admired the hero's courage and intelligence. Wow. So Marcus Redeker, the, the author of the Amistad Rebellion book, he thinks that this was the spark for what was about to come. So we don't know how Madison Washington got from admiring art in Philadelphia to being human cargo on a boat in Richmond, Virginia. But those early biographies fill in some of the details in ways that are really something. Okay. Um, so I want to dive into one of those just a little bit. All right. So according to a short 1861 biography, by a black abolitionist named William Wells Brown. He said that Madison Washington snuck into the plantation where his wife was enslaved to free her, but he got caught. Mm. He fought off some of the white people attacking him, but they eventually overpowered him. And the next thing he knows, he's on the creole, heavily shackled because they know he's escaped before. This version, it talks about how all the men are chained, but the women are allowed to roam free. And I'll just, I'll read you this paragraph because... It's a lot. Okay. It's a little window into 1861. It's written by a black abolitionist, but okay. All right.
1: All right. I'm, the anticipation's kind of...
0: So right after describing how Madison Washington is chained to the floor, it says, in the other cabin among the slave women was one whose beauty at once attracted attention. Though not tall, she yet had a majestic figure. Her well-molded shoulders, prominent bust, black hair which hung in ringlets, Mild blue eyes, finely chiseled what? mouth with a splendid set of teeth, a turned and well rounded chin, skin marbled with the animation of life. What the fuck? And veined by blood given to her by her master. What? She stood as the representative of two races. With only one eighth of African, she was what is called at the South an octoroon. It was said that her grandfather had served his country in the Revolutionary War as well as in both houses of Congress. This was Susan, the wife of Madison.
1: Wait, what? Madison, Washington's wife? Yes. Is this, like...
0: She's on the boat in another cell or whatever.
1: But, and he's next door. Apparently. So they put both of them on. According to this paragraph,
0: which I mean, the whole time I'm like, "You, uh, that's oh yeah." Wait, just, she's on
1: the boat. <laughs> I know that whole listening to that paragraph just made me feel really gross inside. Honestly, it was so it just got weirder. I mean, I was like, "Oh, prominent shoulders, great, and bust and chisel and teeth. chin and yeah, lots of teeth,
0: blood from her master." It was. As, so, I'm
1: just like,
0: Bleh. yeah.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So I'm just a little bit um. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I just like listening to that made me feel all sorts of dirty.
0: And there's no indication that his wife was on the boat. We don't know her name. This biography is the first source to ever add the idea that she was an octoroon. Um, There's a lot going on with whoever wrote this.
1: But okay, I, there is a lot going on with whoever wrote this. But I, there's, there's a few things going on a, yes, with whoever, whoever wrote this.
0: But I appreciate the storytelling because Frederick Douglass in his earlier version.
1: Do you appreciate the storytelling? Yeah.
0: Frederick Douglass killed Susan off during the rescue attempt. But this guy, Brown, he knows how to tell a story. He brings her back and puts her on the boat.
1: All her chiseled chins and all. Yes. Oh her maybe, teeth right her there. Teeth. there <laughs> so close
0: to her husband.
1: But not tall. Just not no, tall, no, but no. prominent shoulders and bust.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, majestic figure.
1: I, I want to know what else it said, but I also do
0: not want you to read it again. I not so Please yeah, don't. And, and I didn't read that much more of this. Um, I got that Is far. That and where I'm like, you I'm, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. Got
1: enough for one day. <laughs> yeah,
0: I had to lay. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> had to lay down. <laughs> I had to smoke a cigarette. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Whoa. Oh, gross.
0: Um. Okay, back to reality. In real life, we know that Madison Washington was aboard the Creole. And some of the slaves, they may have been planning a revolt before they ever even got on the ship, and they might have smuggled weapons aboard. But what we know for sure is that on November 9th, 1841, under cover of night, Madison Washington and three others led a total of 19 captives in a rebellion. They gained control of the ship. Two people were killed in the battle, one white overseer and one of the rebels, The captain and the first mate were both injured. Then the rebels steered the ship to the Bahamas, a British colony where slavery was outlawed. Okay. Most of them, when they got there, were allowed to leave the ship and considered free. But 18 rebels, they were held responsible and they were kept in the boat under constant guard until the government of the Bahamas could figure this thing out. Because the United States wanted their property back. But Britain was saying, sorry, it's our law that if you set foot on British land, mm-hmm. you are free. Yeah. We're not sending them back.
1: That's great.
0: Yeah. Uh, the people of the Bahamas, mostly free black people, they didn't like the idea that these people were being held on the boat and that they might possibly be returned. So hundreds of little uh, Bahamian boats surrounded the Creole and basically said, this ship is not leaving with those people on it. Wow. Let them go.
1: Yeah. Talk so, about community stepping up.
0: Yeah. So it's probably that pressure, too, that made the British government say, fine, <laughs> everybody can get off the ship if they want, or they can stay and go to New Orleans where they'll remain slaves. It's up to them. This is non-interference. It's not us declaring them free. Right. It's us saying, we're Do not going to interfere. Do you want.
1: Did anyone go to New Orleans?
0: Five enslaved people stayed on the ship, a family of four women and one boy. Wow. Yeah. We're not sure why. Interesting. Yeah. Author Jeffrey R. Kerr-Ritchie, he says that it shouldn't be taken as any indication that they wanted to remain enslaved. Mm-hmm. It's complicated. We don't know. Maybe they had family where they were going. Right. Maybe they feared someone might be hurt if they didn't show up. We don't know.
1: Right. Or maybe yeah. they feared the idea of like having to take care of themselves. Who knows? They, you know? Yeah. Or maybe they were confused. Like, it's, I don't know. Yeah.
0: What we do know is that 128 people gained their freedom from this rebellion, making it the most successful slave revolt in American history. Wow. Yeah. There was a lawsuit. It wasn't quite the same as the Amistad lawsuit because it was the slave owners suing the insurance company. What? Back then, you could insure your slaves. Oh, my gosh. Um, This ended up going all the way to the Georgia Supreme Court, where the insurance company won because they don't cover slave revolts. Sorry, oh god! But oh. because of the tensions, um, the British government ended up eventually, like, paying off the slave owners through some uh, subsequent treaty. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's like the British kind of did pay for the freedom of the people that that got off that boat. Wow. Yeah the creole revolt it had some reverberations in in john quincy adams's house of representatives so at this point there was a gag rule in place that meant you couldn't talk about slavery you couldn't take up petitions about it nothing adams loved pushing the boundaries of this Mm -hmm. he'd eventually help get rid of this rule but not yet
1: you weren't even allowed to talk about slavery
0: no no You couldn't couldn't. bring up something. Well, you couldn't bring up something controversial about slavery or really talk about it. It was like this unofficial rule. You might be censured. You might be, um, I don't know, you might be beaten.
1: Talk about censorship. Like, oh, let's not talk about controversial things. This is Pleasantville. Exactly. Let's not bring up that matter.
0: Yeah. The Southern slaveholders held a lot of influence in Congress and it was pretty disgusting. Hmm. Yeah. Right after the Creole Mutiny... A colleague of Adams is in the House, Representative Joshua R. Giddings of Ohio. He brought up the Creole mutiny on the floor. He praised it in Congress, and he argued that enslaved people automatically become free when they leave the coastal waters of a slave state. The Southerners in the House were livid. Yeah, They voted to censure him, and in response, he just immediately resigned. Mm. Just walked out and said bye-bye. And this is where it gets crazy. There was an opening then, so there was a special election that was held to replace him in his district. About 8,000 people voted in that special election. Of those 8,000 people, 7,500 of them, an unheard of majority, voted to replace Joshua R. Giddings with Joshua R. Giddings. (gasps) They They voted for him to go back by a margin of 18 to 1. What? And he returned.
1: So they were like, Joshua. Yes, Joshua. They're
0: like, take that, the South.
1: <laughs> we want them back.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy to think that those nineteen rebels aboard the Creole they did something that had ripples um, around the world, and in London, and in Congress. Yeah. And Jeffries points out how this is a great example of bottom-up history. Mm. And what we do, plotting through the presidents—I mm-hmm. mean, by definition—is primarily about presidents and related people.
1: Yeah,
0: um, and that's about as top-down as you get. Right. So I'm I'm just happy to balance that out occasionally mm-hmm. with stories like this—that yeah. stories that only exist because of the actions of totally unknown people, mm-hmm. not like the movers and the shakers, more right. like the moved and the shaken. Right. Um, That
1: then ended up changing history. Yeah.
0: People who did something extraordinary that that rocked the world.
1: Right. Wow. That's incredible.
0: Yeah. That's the story of the Amistad and the Creole.
1: Wow. It's heavy, man.
0: A little bit. (laughs) Just just a
1: (laughs) tad. That might be even heavier than like some of our other episodes
0: that were heavy. I mean, it deals with a lot of slavery stuff, but it's yeah. a, I mean, there's a happy-ish ending for some folks.
1: Yeah, and it, I mean, it's a very important story.
0: Marcus Redeker's book is great. And I think it's, there's so many more details and, and things along the way of, you know, these people and the court cases and what they had to deal with and, and who they were mm-hmm. individually. I mean, he really focuses on the, the people, the rebels in ways that, Um, like the movie Amistad couldn't, Mm -hmm. um, at least not many of them and and not for that long. Right. So yeah, I highly recommend it. Oh, cool. Yeah. We've got some shout outs to new patrons to catch up on. Yes, Jeanette. Thank you for your support. Oh,
1: welcome Jeanette.
0: And Amanda, she's the descendant of William Henry Harrison. Really? Probably not the William Henry Wait. Harrison,
1: she says. But <laughs> a mislead. William Henry Harrison. That's pretty cool, Amanda. <laughs> As, that's pretty nice. <laughs> you right? hold on to that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, Molly, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Molly.
0: And Peggy. <laughs> I'm sorry, Peggy. <laughs> For real? I, I said I wouldn't do that, Peggy, and I did it. Um, peop- How dare you? People who haven't seen Hamilton have no idea what we're talking about. But thank you, Peggy.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Peggy. Yes. You're not just an and Peggy. You're you're the Peggy. Yeah,
0: our patrons also get discounts on our merch we've got some super sweet shirts and mugs and totes Um, oh yeah they also get bonus content there's a bonus podcast kinder plotting with our six-year-old daughter yes outtakes from episodes unedited video of interviews um and a handcrafted welcome letter with a sticker (laughs) you know so go to patreon.com search for plotting through the president's or check out plodpod.com for more info on that.
1: Yes, please do. Thank you so much for being here. Get your travel mugs. Get your notebooks. Yes. I know I have. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> it's a little insane. Yeah, Once we you don't get, get that stuff free, Jess. You're, I, you're know, I know. Money. It I defeats forget that. all the purposes. I forget that. But it's definitely a fun site to dig into and yes. in all the ways you can use the designs.
0: Yes. Next week, I'll be talking with Dr. Mark Cheatham. He teaches a course about historical conspiracy theories.
1: Oh, rock on. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun.
0: It's, I'm it should looking, be a little lighter.
1: I'm looking forward yeah. to that one. Oh, yeah.
0: If you like what you heard, spread the word, and thank you for plotting along with us. Thanks,
1: thanks. If you'd like what you heard, spread the word. Thank you for plotting. Bye. <sighs> It's hard to tell, is this like art?